Disrupting Japan, Episode 47. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Oscar Noriega knows a thing or two about video editing. He started out stealing computer time from his high school computer lab and is now trying to move a new generation of video content creators. Off of their desktops and onto their mobile phones. The journey's not been a straightforward one. Oscar and the team at Pocket Supernova trace their journey through three countries and three very different mobile video offerings. And it seems they've finally found that magic combination with their Japanese office and their latest iOS and Android video editing software. We talk a lot about the market forces and strategic thinking that led to each pivot. And we also discuss the key aspect of Japanese programmers that led Oscar to conclude that setting up operations in Japan would give Pocket Supernova a huge competitive advantage over the global competition. But I don't want to give too much away. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Oscar Noriega. Uh, CEO and founder of Pocket Supernova. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, Pocket Supernova, the company, you've released several products. You're heavily focused on mobile video editing and creation. Right. But that's a really broad statement. Can you drill down a bit and tell me about your company and what the products you make do? Well, we, when we started the company, we realized that video was going to be one of the next big trends on the mobile market three years ago. Actually, we started in Mountain View in, in San, Silicon Valley. Okay. So we got our first investor over there、uh, from 500 startups. Okay, so we wanted to do a mobile focused company, but at the same time, we really wanted to see, you know, taking a look at all the markets, what could be. You know, one interesting market that we love that we. The, the decision to launch、uh, these particular products or a particular industry was really a, a kind of a top down、yes. market based research. Yes. Interesting.、Uh, and also, sort of personal experience, I would say, because, you know, to dig a little bit deeper into why we started the company. But、um, one of my personal interests has been video for a very long time. So I, I, I learned how to edit video when I was really, really young. Mac OS. Seven or something like that, and Premiere 2. All right, it's so, gotten easier since then. Yeah, <laughs> way easier.、Uh, so, I'm talking about 94 or something、right. like that. So, actually, in my high school,、uh, there was, and we had a laboratory where we had a bunch of Macs and we got Premiere、uh, there. I was not supposed to be there because I was a high school student and it was only for university students. But still, I figured to pitch、uh, an idea, and they said, yeah, yeah, whatever, just use it. Nobody's really using it. Back in those days, you had to spend a lot of time、uh, editing on, on Premiere and then right, right. render it、uh, at night. And you just leave it all night long. Come back in the morning and hope, it's, <laughs> hope you didn't make any mistakes. Hope, hope it was good enough to not render it again, right? So it was actually terrible because、uh, yeah, you had to wait for about 12 hours and then just get to see the 20 second render. So since then, I've been very passionate about cameras and the process of. Filmmaking, video making, and so on. Okay, so when you saw the opportunity in the mobile space, it, was, it wasn't completely top down. This was something you've been interested、exactly. in for a long, long time. Exactly. But when I said the top down、uh, fact, it's because 
we really took a look at, at the market as well from trying to find the problems that we thought that were going to be surfacing over the next few years. Well, let's let's talk about that. What yeah. are what are your products and what are the problems it's really solving? Well, first of all, we started with a messaging product. Right. So actually, we pivoted twice. So we started with a video messaging product. Mm-hmm. And this was way before everyone was doing video messaging, uh, way before Messenger, way before Skype doing video messaging and, and stuff like that. Right. We wanted to use uh, videos for a short way of communicating with your friends and family and just sending asynchronous short videos back and forth and so especially the, with groups. The, the space is good. The idea is good. Right. Why, why did you end up pivoting? Well, we didn't really find a lot of traction. Um, I think it was maybe... A little bit hard for us to sell the, the, the concept to investors, first of all. Uh-huh. But then second, I think we had a very hard wake-up call in a way to see that most of the big companies actually started to jump into the space very quickly. Just very few acquisitions happened. Actually, we were approached by Skype. Huh. And they said, hey, you guys are doing a really cool product. Uh, so we just launched the product on, on Demo Day. And they actually met us on Demo Day. So we had like, what, I don't know, 5,000 users or something <laughs> right. like that. But they loved that because the UI was so nice and the experience was so nice. And they said, this is really interesting. And would you guys be interested in talking to us? And uh, maybe you guys can join the company. And I think basically they were sort of uh, trying to do an hire and, uh-huh. and bring us in. We said no. It was too early for us. And we said, well, you know what? We just prefer to raise some money and keep going. Of course. Of uh, course. As everybody <laughs> else. Uh, in the end, what happened was that Skype ended up buying actually a company in the space ah. uh, doing video messaging. Well, I think with anything, whether it's video messaging or mm-hmm. SMS, anything mm-hmm. with a strong network effect, there only can be a few winners. And it is whoever gets that, that critical mass first. Exactly. Takes it. Yeah, it's true. I think that there's only one or two horses that are going to win. Right, right. And then everybody else is sort of, you know, struggling to to shine. And then I don't think it's possible to stick around for that long time if you don't really hit that massive traction very quickly. And credit to you to realize that was happening. Yeah. You realized the market was running away from you. It was time to make a change. Exactly. So what did you pivot to? So we pivoted to a, a selfie camera app. Uh, that was a little bit different, but it was in the same space because it was video selfie. And actually, we named the product video, video selfie. selfie. So we thought that on the social sharing space, a lot of movement was happening. Uh, Instagram at the time was considering announcing the video. So we, were, we realized that many companies were trying to be the Instagram of video at the time. Right. And uh, one of our uh, investors and one of our advisors actually told us, hey, you know what? So many people are trying to be the Instagram of video, so don't make the same mistake because the only Instagram of video will be Instagram. And he, he thought it that way way before Instagram announced that they were going to introduce video. Well, it's that same dynamic that you were, you were talking about before, that there can only be a handful of winners. Exactly. So what we thought is, all right, so how about if we just focus on the creation side? And that's sort of where the idea of the company started to be more concrete, uh-huh. where we realized, okay, you know what? The, the creation space seems to be you know, hungry for new ideas. And, and there is an empty space where we realized there's so many things you can do with video that are not happening right now. Uh, we thought about the decoration stuff uh, very early on, like, okay, how about we put some you know, text or GIFs or things moving around you or tracking your face. Right, um, right. So it's video instead of just the, yeah, the little marks and text, they'd be moving. Uh, right. We were so inspired by all these decoration apps in Japan, yeah. uh, the photo decoration apps, 
that was a huge thing already at the time. And but mainly also we saw that because of all these creation tools happening around the photo creation space, we thought this is going to happen as well on the video space eventually. And you will need all these sort of creation tools for sure. But the challenge is video is motion and video is dynamic, not static. So if you just it's a lot harder than just dropping a line of text on a on a GIF. On a photo, it? right? Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot harder uh, from the technology point of view or the, uh, the, the engineering perspective. We thought, well, this is going to be harder, but at the same time, we know that this is going to be you know, a good space to be at. Trying to bring some of those things from the decoration space, from the photo space into the video market, then the challenge is high enough. And we believe that we can contribute something there. So that's how Video Selfie yeah. started. And you have um, a really unique product. I mean, right. If it's hard, that's why no one else is doing it. Exactly. If you take a look at Video Selfie, actually, I think nowadays it's way easier to explain it because the space already blew up. Snapchat acquired a company called uh, Luxury, uh-huh. which is a company that powers the 3D filters inside the app. And also now Facebook acquired Masquerade as well. And we were in a very similar space because actually we were also doing face tracking and face recognition. And then all the uh, motion happening inside the app was actually using uh, face tracking, face recognition. So you move the camera around and then all the objects were just floating around. We sort of come up with this idea of putting your cat ears. Right, right. And that blew up on Instagram for a while. Uh, that, that helped us get a lot of users uh, into, into the app. And so many people just wanted to join and do the cat ears. <laughs> That's, I think, where we started to see that you know, we want to be a company that is creating tools for uh, uh, video creation on mobile devices. So after the acquisitions by like Snapchat, were you feeling like you, you'd sort of miss that wave again? That happened way later. Oh, yeah? I mean, that actually happened until last year. Oh, okay. So okay. Uh, we had a long run with that product, maybe about a year and a half. It got a lot of traction. Uh, we did like 2.5 million downloads. It grew very quickly. It grew very fast and uh, got decent traction. But once we took off, we were just monitoring what, what was going on on Instagram and other networks. So you were able to shoot this video selfie, decorate it, put the cat ears and some filters. So what is, what is the monetization of that? Is it a freemium model? Is yeah, it app purchases? the idea was to do it like a freemium model. Uh, basically, eventually we wanted to provide some premium content. Traction went re- really well, but then we started to monitor all these apps in the video space. One thing that really caught our eye, and we went up very quickly, and then we went down very quickly. And it was really steep very, very rapidly. Well, I, I um, guess that's, that makes sense. If a lot of what you're writing is the idea of the cat ears really catch on, so you'll get a whole lot of new users. And then somewhere else, some very clever engineers are coming up with another great idea, which is next month's clever. To be honest with you, it was not really that people cloned us or copy us quickly. Mm. It was more about the fact that what was happening was that there were a bunch of new apps for creation, uh, for content creation, either video, photo, GIFs, so many different things happening in the space. But we realized that the users didn't really stick to any product for that long. Mm. So the retention was a huge problem. Even though we provided new contents or we come up with new ideas and so on, we realized that if we didn't build this inside somewhere, we'd already have a very strong network effect. Right. Where you had already so many reasons to go back to the product every single day. And this just became sort well, of an accessory. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense. I mean, it, especially in this space, mm-hmm. which is novelty. Yeah. By definition, your customers are novelty seeking. Yes. So they are going to get bored and move on much faster than 
totally. customers in other segments. Totally. They yeah. move on very quickly. So we realized, okay, they got it. They installed it. They did a cat ears. They did another one and another one. And then what happened was friends on Instagram get bored quickly. Right. Um, and I'm not talking about the creator. I'm talking about your followers. What happens, the people following your feed, they are looking at your content. And once you do one thing, it's like, oh, that's really cool. I want to do it. Yeah, but after two or three cat ears videos, you're like, all right, enough with the cat ears. Enough with the cat ears, right? Yeah. So uh -huh. that actually was a huge problem. People just get saturated very quickly and they just want to move on to the next new thing because it's new again. So it's hard to keep up, even if you provide a lot of content. Yeah. It's hard to stick. And it was really hard to stick. And we saw every single app in the category suffering from the same behavior. So and, and, and that's when we realized if this is something that it lives inside a super huge network where you had so many reasons to keep coming back to the product. And then once in a while you use it, we thought then it's going to work. Right, but right. for us, I mean, to bring a very strong network and stay on top, really we tough. realized it was, so, was going to be so hard, so challenging. And for us, again, we, when we saw, you know, an app that got 50 million downloads and they had exactly the same pattern going down super steep, right? Really, really fast. So you realize it's the, it's the structure of the industry. It's not anything you're doing wrong, Exactly. Right? So we realized, you know, the user's behavior, it's the same for every single app, no matter the scale. That, was that a, brought you to pivot number two. Exactly. That was a huge yellow signal for us. But in a way, once we set this goal uh, hmm. for the company where we said we want to create tools for video creation, and we actually started talking to our users a lot. Uh, we just asked them, what are you using these apps for? And we started noticing a lot of kids recording the, the selfie, and then they asked us to uh, make it available to save it to your camera roll. In the very beginning, we just had the sharing directly to the networks. Okay. And we said, why? I mean, you can share it anywhere you want. No, 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 I wanted to, you know, keep it in my camera roll because I want to use it on my YouTube blog. Oh, interesting. Hmm. The biggest shift that was happening on YouTube at that moment was that YouTube kept growing like crazy as a platform, but they totally stopped doing tools and video creation tools. Why did this happen? The opportunity to build some product that it's really aimed at uh, allowing any user on YouTube to become a creator, it's huge. Sure. We started toying around with the idea and we actually built a small prototype here. So the current product, it's not, it's not decorations, it's, not, it's a full-blown editor within the mobile, that runs in the mobile phone. Exactly. Okay. And it's kind of like an iMovie on asteroids. All right. So basically our main competitor right now is iMovie from Apple on the iPhone. Huh. The de facto video editing app for everyone on the iPhone is iMovie because it's free. Sure. But we realized that it was very limited. And also we realized something, something very clear and very simple, which was, you know, this is not Apple's main business either. I mean, yeah, it'll always be sort of a neglected child. Right, I guess. So what is a platform most people are using to edit video for YouTube channels, for Vine? What are, what are they using now? Apple? No, I guess that actually, you know, this is pretty interesting, but most of the content on YouTube and Vine it's coming from PCs and Macs. Okay. So they're using either Final Cut or they're using either the so traditional desktop video. So the well-established professional uh, video software editing applications, uh, they've been there for forever. Sure. It's sort of a natural thing to, to happen that you know, the most professional tools you know, dominating every single creation aspect on the desktop. But on mobile, something interesting is happening. No app 
was actually building something towards these creators. So are, are you starting to see content creators that are exclusively producing on mobile now? Yes. On, on YouTube? For sure. On... Excellent. But I think the logic there and, and really where we saw the biggest opportunity is that you know, top creators, they already have a workflow. Sure. It's really hard to change the behavior of those users because they invested a lot, right? They invested a lot of time. They invested a lot on gear, cameras, yeah, they, microphones. They've got a system that's obviously working for them. So, so especially if you have an audience already, you invested on something mm. to create that. But what we saw as a huge opportunity was actually the creators that live inside the long tail. So smaller creators or new creators that are just coming onto the exactly. system. Exactly, which is huge. You know, there's so many people that have been watching content for a very long time. And now they're sort of feeling, okay, I want to be a creator as well. I want to start. I want to start my own channel. Well, this is something I think um, a previous guest is on the podcast also talked about it. They're saying the evolution of any medium, inevitable shrinking of the gap between the producers and the consumers. Right. If you look at book publishing, there is a huge gap between the producer and the consumer. Mm -hmm. By the time you step it through blogs and Facebook and you get down to a tweet, there is no difference. Right. It's a fundamentally equal platform. And... It seems like video is starting that starting down that path now. Yeah, totally. And it's because of the mobile market. So do you think that editing and posting video will be as intuitive and as quick as a writing a tweet? I guess eventually it will be. I mean the challenge with video though it's that you know, a tweet is is I guess really a good example of uh, how can you simplify something yeah. to the uh, in, the, in the case of a tweet, to the minimum expression, right? But it's also um, a matter of, of sort of like the, the way the user interacts with yeah, it. Yeah, so for sure. So if I'm sending out a tweet, I'll send it out and I don't think about it. It, it takes all of, you know, 10 seconds and then I, I've kind of forgotten about it. It's done. Right. Video, even on mobile, is much more of a investment in effort and thinking and planning. Or well, do you see it eventually being just like, oh, great. Let me get this. It's out. It depends on the use case. And, yeah. I, and I believe that even in the video space, you have so many different categories. In our industry, what we're seeing is that, yes, of course, there's a huge opportunity for a very simple video creation. Something that it's almost as, as seamless as doing a tweet is possible to do. There's hundreds of apps that you just launch the camera, record the video and put the filter. Right. So it's sort of like the Instagram fact, right? That's, you know, that's a different thing. That's almost close to that, the decorations we were talking about right. earlier, right? But that's, a, that's an interesting category and that's a very you know, active category because you have a lot of people that just want to use it in a very casual way. But the area where we're focusing on, it's a very particular one and it's uh, storytelling side of video. So video has many different uses, right? I mean, now with live stream can be broadcasting what's going on in the moment. And, and with these small videos, it's just maybe just sharing the moment. It's like a photo in motion. But the, the storytelling is very particular because the storytelling actually requires people, one, to think about an idea. And, yeah, yeah. and you actually have to go through that process. What am I going to say in front of the camera? So it's not scripted, but you're so actually... So how do you think this is going to, to evolve? So, for example, we were talking about YouTube, which, well, there's a whole range. There, right. There's people who simply turn on the camera, but there's also... You go live, right? Yeah. There's also very well-produced content up right. there. What do you see as the most useful feature? How will people's behaviors change? How will they use video in a different way? Well, the reason why we believe available? the pocket video use case, which is a sort of a pre- and post-production 
solution for mobile content creation. We take the analogy from TV. So, so when you turn the TV on, you have mainly two kinds of contents. Content that is live and content that is pre-produced and post-produced. And the quality and the dynamics, it's completely different. Mm. And actually, they tell you a story in a very different way. Whoever is creating that content put in a lot of effort into those ideas and they crafted something and the result is completely different from doing a live show. Sure. When you see a video that is well edited, when you see that and you think about it and you're like, well, maybe when, when live, but if, why? If we're talking about, hmm. there, there's a big difference between making the tools for this kind of storytelling available on mobile and having people use those tools to create engaging stories. So right. we like on YouTube, there's, we were saying, you know, plenty of people just turn that camera on and just talk. Right. Do you think that once the tools are available and easy to use, people will just invest more time to create compelling stories? Not everyone. I think there's going to be two choices always. And there's going to be people who will prefer to just switch on the camera and talk in front of the camera. Maybe some people will be very good at that. And of course, maybe tools are going to get better to do live shows for sure. Right. But at the same time, I believe that there's still a very interesting opportunity for people who want to craft something that is more unique and something that tells a story in a very different pace. You can tell the difference. Excellent. And you can actually see the result of putting that effort into crafting something. And we see that eventually happening on mobile for sure. Okay. Excellent. Are you still pursuing a freemium model? Sort of the same path. First, uh, we launched the product introducing all the creation tools, uh, all the basic creation tools. Back in September, uh, just two weeks ago, we just introduced a new version. So it includes a new sort of production tools as well for your videos way improved and a little bit more sophisticated so it's getting more sophisticated and because of the technology and you know phones are getting faster we're getting more memory and so on so now it's you know technically it's possible to replicate some of those things that it's almost the same experience in the core essence of what you can do but it's faster and it's easier and yeah, actually it's, it's funnier it's pretty to amazing use. and then you use your fingers on the screen and you realize that i'm manipulating everything just pinching in pinching out and you know, you're touching the, the video in a way. So it's very different from just having the mouse and the keyboard. Yeah. So it's a very different paradigm as well. Uh, users who were born with a phone, millennials and kids and young kids and teenagers, they love the creation on, on mobile devices. And they're not really... Creatively, when you're sitting down on a tablet to do editing versus sitting on a desktop, yeah. it would seem to me that your, your thought processes are different. I mean, do it you... Is. Are we, are we starting to see videos that are produced on mobile have a particular look or a style to them? Not really. I guess that the style, maybe it's more uh, about the platform itself. Okay. And then kids just follow what they're seeing, right? And they're trying to come up with new ideas and everything. But even the formats, a lot of the video that we're seeing being created on, on Pocket Video really follows the same rules not rules, but the visual guidelines and the visual style of YouTube. Well, but that's not surprising. Every new technology starts out by imitating right. what, it's, what it will eventually replace. Right. And I believe that really the key here is that it's just making it accessible for more people. If they just got their phones, that's enough. Right? It's got everything they need in there. You, you, don't, need every, you don't need anything else. You actually, you can just start with that. Uh, there's so many talented kids that are just waiting for that chance to just you know, be on the spotlight as well. 
Okay. And that's sort of a very interesting take as well for us. You okay. know, we, we believe that we can be the, the seating area for these platforms where so many new creators that could be really, really big eventually can actually born and can actually start from here. That makes sense. Let's shift gears a bit. You've started and run startups in Mexico, mm-hmm. in the U.S., mm-hmm. and in Japan. Mm-hmm. I've got to ask you <laughs> just some compare and contrast questions. So Between the three countries? Between the three. Well, the U.S., San Francisco, I think, is the outlier. Yeah. That's, that's the one that's unique in the world. Yeah. But... What are some of the the starkest differences you see between the ecosystems here in Japan and even like Mexico and San Francisco? If you're an entrepreneur for all all your life, when you go to to Silicon Valley, you realize, yeah, this place is just crazy, right? I mean, everything just moves so fast. And the entire ecosystem is just basically built around that idea and that concept of everything's possible, right? So we can just build everything no matter how, how crazy the idea is. Anybody can build everything. So I think that that's the most shocking part for me every time I go there. And, and we, with, I mean, stark differences, I mean, for sure, when you start a company so in Mexico it, or Japan, it's a painful process in a way. It's kind so of So you think that just people are more, they're more doubting whether the idea is possible? Or in San Francisco, they'll be more likely to say, yeah, that's, it's possible. I guess people who go to Silicon Valley have that kind of mindset for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. they believe that something can be better or that they can create something completely new, or they, they can really alter the course of any industry or any sort of idea, basically. And so I, I that was, was that the mindset that drew you there the first time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that when we went there and we raised actually our angel round there, in our particular case, we found it very hard to hire engineers in the video space. Uh, and especially in Silicon Valley, we thought it was gonna be way easier Competition is really stiff in, in Silicon Valley, right? Absolutely. You're competing not with Google and Apple or a handful of companies. You're competing with every single startup. Very well-funded startups. Very well-funded startups. Was that one of the reasons that drew you to Japan? Yes. Ah. We interview a lot of engineers that were really skilled, really good. But then we realized, just talking with them about the video space, that they had no experience whatsoever. Mm. Uh, you're talking about image processing, and you're talking about... Uh, well, it's a very, very specific and deep field. Exactly. It's a lot of memory optimization, uh, resources optimization. Was, was it that there was a lot of engineers with those talents in Japan, or just much less competition for, for sure. a few engineers? No, there is actually a great, great insight about that and why we thought it was really great to be in Japan. Why is that? Well, the video game industry. Ah, of course. Game developers. You know, game developers, especially back in the day, and I'm talking, you know, before game engines and before the Unities and, and, and so on. So you're talking like console gaming Exactly, here, or, yeah. console gaming, but back in the days. The biggest challenge that you had as an engineer was that since there, were, there was no middleware, middleware whatsoever or no engines whatsoever, you actually had to do everything almost by assembly language for that mm-hmm. specific processor or those GPUs or those specific chipsets, even some custom chipsets that the console had back in the day. So the best engineers actually were coming out from Japan. All right. Because they, re- they really had a lot of access to talking with the Sony engineers and really understanding how the platform worked and so on. And we realized these guys, they had a lot of experience actually using OpenGL because they build engines for right. those chipsets and they really understood the, the, the essence of doing uh, graphics processing and image processing. Okay. 
Now, recently, there's been a lot of Japanese companies who have moved to San Francisco, not as a market entry, but just to, to move there to start a company. And as someone who's started companies in three different countries, when do you think it's a good idea for a Japanese company to move to Silicon Valley to raise funds? And when do you think it's best for them to stay in their home market? And I mean, I think that the problem with, with Japanese companies in a way is that the market's still very strong in, in Japan. And, yeah. and in a way, even though it's declining and maybe some people can argue about the aging population and so on, still domestic market and domestic consumption is still high. And it's a full mobile, 100% penetration mobile market with crazy good networks. So all the infrastructure is ready and all the market is ready. So you can thrive and you can succeed. So you think it's just there, nothing's forcing them to go overseas. Yeah, totally. I mean, at least in the very beginning, there's no motivation to really think about as a global company in Japan. So that's why you see a lot of companies starting here just saying, oh, we're going to go after the Japanese market. We're making a lot of money. So who cares about the U.S., right? Well, I think that, I think that attitude is changing now. I, I think, think so, too. You know, uh, there's been a, a couple of rather high-profile companies that made that mistake and paid for it. I think even like startups now tend to think a little more globally than even big companies did 20 years ago. I believe so, but I still see that pattern in a way of yeah. so many startups focusing on, on the Japanese market first. Yeah. They're not really thinking about building a product that is going to be for the entire planet. They're thinking about making a successful product in Japan and then eventually maybe think about bringing it outside. So you'd say it'd be worthwhile to move to San Francisco early. If you have a product that has that global potential and you believe that you're really building something that can succeed around the world and can be easily ported into different areas of the world, then I think that's the right time to go to Silicon Valley Mm. and then Mm. try to raise money there. But if you don't have that ambition or you don't have that kind of product where it can be, you know, universal enough, I don't think that there's a reason to go to Silicon Valley. Okay, excellent. And there's a few industries, there's very strong engineering for those areas. For instance, robotics. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, robotics is one of the areas that so many people keep talking about and people say, well, nothing's happening in Japan. Well, they're wrong. I mean, there's so many great startups. It's actually, yeah, it's astounding the depth of R&D that's being done in robotics exactly. today. Exactly. It's crazy. By both startups and the And big the companies, companies as yeah. well. But even people who used to work at big companies now sort of considering moving on to build their own companies. Yeah. Robotics and also mobility in a way or, or any related to the uh, car industry you know, this great company called Wheel, uh, the wheelchair. Yeah. I mean, they, they, were, they were actually our batchmates in 500 startups in Mountain View. Oh, yeah. So we know them very well. All these guys come from the auto industry. So all these ex-engineers with, you know, such great skills, you know, for building a product like that, they decided to, you know, use those skills to, to build a mobility product. In some industries, there might be a really great connection with Japan. All right. And, and especially because of the talent. That makes sense. What, what do you think is the biggest problem facing Japanese startups today? Well, maybe the lack of startup and entrepreneurial culture in a way nowadays, which is ironic, right? I mean, all these great companies back in the post-war era, well, I think they were great way. entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. I mean, in the in, end... I, I think that's exactly it. In the, the 60s and 70s, companies had to go global. The domestic market wasn't big enough. So the lesson is there. And I think it's very visible for Japan. The problem is maybe they forgot about that. Or maybe as a foreigner, it's easier for us to see it. But come on, I mean, the Sonys and the Toyotas and the Hondas and all these guys, they build empires from scratch 
<laughs> and from a totally destroyed country. Yeah. With absolutely. a country that was actually starving after the war. And the only way to try was to try to be global and to try to, to go outside. So right? the DNA is definitely in there. I think they have it wired somehow, you know, in their DNA. And well, nowadays it's kind of like comfortable enough. So nothing's pushing them to do well, it. Actually, right. that, that probably leads well into what I call my magic wand question. If I gave you a magic wand and I said you could change one thing about Japan, uh, education, attitude towards risk, anything at all to make it better for startups here, what would you change? Maybe changing the perception of someone decided not to go through that path and just say, Dad, I'm not going to join Sony. I'm not going to join Toshiba or, so to make or people Toyota. More, you would make people more accepting yeah. of people making different career choices yes. or lifestyle choices. And one and choice could be, I want to build my own company. It doesn't really matter if it's a you know, super scalable business or like IT company. It could be even... I want to open restaurants or whatever. I mean, yeah, just the I, that I, I sort of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, that's right? very much at the heart of innovation in general, I think. To yeah. be open-minded and accepting of people who want to do something different off the beaten path as well. So, so that would be a huge event. That thing alone, I think it would help a lot. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thanks, thanks for so sitting much. down with yeah. me. Yeah, thank Excellent. you so much. Thanks for the time. And we're back. The Pocket Supernova team has had an interesting journey so far. And their most recent pivot into a pure video editing platform for mobile seems to have put them on the track for success. You know, I wonder to what extent the novelty-seeking behavior that Oscar and I talked about skews the growth numbers for all mobile apps. Those in gaming and the social space are most extreme, of course, but it seems that mobile apps these days are a lot like pop stars. They have huge initial growth numbers with legions of fans and tons of press. And a year later, the world has forgotten all about them and are now transfixed by the new greatest thing since the last greatest thing. But it seems that Pocket Supernova has now identified and solved a real and persistent problem for its users one with less novelty, but far more staying power and earning power than cute cat ears. I also thought it was interesting that Oscar considers having development being done in Japan as a key strategic advantage. With the increased centralization of and competition for talent in San Francisco, and with venture capital becoming more and more global, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the future. If you've got an idea about where mobile video is heading, then Oscar and I would love to hear about it. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash 4047 and let us know what you think. And when you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Oscar and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.